Take your Bibles and turn to first, rather to Matthew chapter one, first chapter of Matthew chapter one, and we'll begin reading in verse eighteen. I'd like to speak to you this morning about the subject of Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, and we'll be dealing with that this morning. Matthew chapter one, verse eighteen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And while he fought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. And in 714, it's, it prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they, and they would call his name Emmanuel. But no one probably at that time understood what the prophetic significance of that was. Joseph had just found out that his espoused wife was with child. This presented a huge problem to Joseph because he knew that he was not the father, because he and Mary were still in the espousal part of their relationship. You see, in New Testament times, when a Jewish couple was espoused to each other, it was similar to our engagement with a big difference. And that is, our engagement means you're promised to one another, but espousal meant that you are promised to one another and you're considered actually husband and wife. You notice in the passage we read, Joseph is, is called the husband of Mary, and Mary is called the wife of Joseph, but they were not yet completely married. They were a spouse. And uh, so before they consummated the marriage, they were, they were considered husband and wife because it was a legal thing. And in order to break the espousal, they had to actually get a divorce. And Joseph knew that he and Mary had not been together intimately, so it was not possible for the child that she was bearing to be his. And so he had a dilemma. What was he going to do? And he had to do something about that because he could not be married to Mary since she had been unfaithful to him, he thought. And so privately, he was trying to think of a way that he could put her away privately. He could divorce her privately without shaming her publicly. I think he still loved Mary, and he wanted to do this without causing her much shame, and he was considering that in his mind. At that time, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. What a declaration. What a discovery something that has never taken place in all of human history and never will again. And he says, your wife, yes, she's with child, 
And I know it's not from you, but I guarantee you it's not from another man either. God, the Holy Spirit, caused your wife to conceive, and so what she's bearing uh, is that is the child that God made in the womb. And when that child is born, you will call him Jesus. Now, there's a verse in here, verse 27, that's added, but this is not what the angel told to Joseph. I don't think he mentioned this, but it says in the Bible, God tells us, explains to us, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken to of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and you will call his name Emmanuel. So Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. So this morning I want us to consider what is the significance of God being with us? What's the significance of Jesus being called Emmanuel, God with us? Of course, we know that we were not there, so it wasn't God with us in, the, in physical presence because we weren't there. But it means that God was with us, that is, with humanity. God came to dwell in human flesh with humanity, so he's called God with, with us. So let's consider just what that means. Why are the reasons that God came to be with us? Let me give you five reasons this morning. I think they're very significant. First of all, Jesus came or God came to be with us so he could be our standard, our standard. Now, what we mean by standard is he's the one that you go by. He's the one that you uh, aspire to be like. He is our standard. You know, you don't want as Christians to aspire to be like me. I don't want to aspire to be like you because all of us have faults. All of us have failures. But there is a standard that we can go by who has no failures, no faults whatsoever, and that's Jesus. And so he came to this earth to be our standard. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means behavior, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now how can we know how God's holiness looks in everyday life? How can we know what it means to be holy in everyday life? Jesus came so we could observe God being holy in human, as a human being. And so he's the only one who ever lived that was completely holy. And he came so that we could observe what God being holy looks like in human flesh. And so if you want to know how to live, you look at Jesus. 1 John 2 verse 6 says, And we ought to walk even as he walked. Even as he walked. How did he walk? He walked a holy life. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, we need to understand as we examine this, that first of all, Jesus was completely human. He was totally human. Now, he was the God-man. That means he was totally God, but he was also totally human. He wasn't less God because he was human. He wasn't less human because he was God. He was completely a human being. And because of that, he experienced human appetites and needs like we do. The Bible tells us that Jesus got hungry. He was the Son of God, but he got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He got sleepy. He experienced those things like we experience, those human needs and, and human appetites like being hungry. He knew all about that because he was a human being. 
he also experienced human emotions. The Bible tells us of several emotions that the Lord went through. He was angry. He experienced grief. He, was, he became troubled. He wept. He had agony, and he was sorrowful. All these emotions Jesus experienced because he was a true human being. But there's a great difference with Jesus, and that is he always, without any exception, he always rejected sin. All the time, he rejected sin. I don't believe Jesus had any sin whatsoever. The Bible supports that. It says in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned in any way. 1 Peter 2, 22 says, who did no sin, neither was guile, that is deceit, found in his mouth. He was not deceitful. He was true. He was genuine. And he did no sin whatsoever. That means he had no wrong thoughts. He had no wrong deeds. He had no wrong words. He had no wrong desires. Nothing about him was wrong. He was spotless. He was the sinless son of God. And so that makes him different than us. He was human, but he had no sin. And therefore, he was a pattern of what God wills for us to be. He was what God wants us to be. So God came to be with us so he could show us what he wants us to be like. And that is just like Jesus. The Bible says that he was humble. Philippians chapter 2 says, He being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of God. And likeness of man being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. For God to become a man, that took humility. And he humbled himself, and he asked us to be humble. Also, the Bible says he was kind. There was all kinds of ways that he showed that he was kind. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it tells us, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And so he was kind. Where to be kind? Because he was kind. A good example of that is when he met the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember, Jesus went out of his way to see her. He says, I must needs go through Samaria. And he went to the well where he knew he was going to meet that lady. And he, she was a lady who had been married five times and now living with a man who was not her husband. And yet Jesus cared for her. He was kind to her. And he led her through, the, through the, the understanding of who he was in a very kind way. Even when he revealed her sin, he was kind to her. And so he was a kind person. He was tender-hearted. Uh, tender-hearted. Ephesians 4, be kind one to another, tender-hearted. Jesus was tender-hearted. You think of the Lord Jesus when he, when he faced different people and who had needs. He was tender-hearted. He, for, he found a person who was lame. He was tender-hearted. He cared for that person, and he restored him to health. A person that was blind, he cared about that. A person who was deaf, he cared about that. He met all these needs because he was a tender-hearted person. And he also was long-suffering. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 2, that we're to be long-suffering. And you think of the examples of Jesus being long-suffering. Uh, you know, sometimes we lose our patience with other people. I was coming back from Wilmington uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, and I was driving along, and there was a flashing 
caution light, and uh, the people on my right and people on my left had stop stop light, and I was going to go through the the, uh, caution light. And right when I was almost there, the person on the right, they came out of this white van right in front of me, and I slammed the brakes on, the, the road was wet, and I, and I skidded, and I, I didn't hit them, but, boy, they almost got hit. And uh, it's tempting, you know, just to scream at that person and everything. I, didn't, I was just glad I was alive, you know, it didn't get, get hurt. But uh, we go through situations in our life that make us uh, less than long-suffering. But Jesus was long-suffering. You think about Judas. He trained Judas. He chose Judas. He trained him. He let Judas go off and out on those trips that the, that the apostles took. He even let Judas, Judas, I believe, perform miracles because God could allow him to do that. He did all those things, and he was kind to Judas. Remember, even when Judas betrayed him, and Judas came into the, up to the garden, into the garden with, where Jesus was, he said, friend... Betrayest thou me with a kiss? He was kind to Judas. He was long-suffering. You think of Peter. He was long-suffering to Peter. Uh, Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. But he said, Peter, you will. No, I'm not going to. I I would die before I deny you. But it wasn't long before Peter denied him. Said, I never knew him. Cursed and said, I never knew him. And then Jesus, you remember when Peter was there close to Jesus, Jesus was on trial. The Bible says Jesus looked at Peter. He didn't lash out at him. He just looked at him, and it broke Peter's heart. And he was kind to Peter. And then later he said, Peter, I've got something for you to do. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so he wasn't through with Peter. He was a long-suffering person. And you remember Thomas? Thomas wasn't there the first time after, the, after Jesus rose from the grave, and the, the other disciples were there. And Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see the print of the nails in his hands and, uh, and, and, and the place in his side. And that next time Thomas was there and Jesus appeared, the doors being shut, and he said, Thomas, reach forth your hands. You know, thrust it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus could have lashed out at Thomas, but he wasn't. He was long-suffering. Aren't you glad he is? Because he's the same with us. He's long-suffering. He was a pattern of what God wants us to be. He was forgiving. You remember the lady in John chapter 8, the woman, the woman taken in the act of adultery, and they brought her before Jesus, and Jesus uh, said that, you know, they wanted to stone her, and he said, well, the one without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all began to leave. And she's standing there, the lady who was just taken in the act of adultery, a guilty lady, and he said, where are thine accusers? And she said, there is none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He's forgiving. Aren't you glad he is? Well, God wants us to be that way. We're to be forgiving. He's loving. Ephesians chapter 5 says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us. Walk in love like he walked. And so why did Jesus come? Why did God come to be with us in human flesh? Because he wanted us to be like him. The Bible says, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he went about doing good. How should we live? Well, we should live like Jesus lived. 
like Jesus lived. If you're involved in sin, you might want to justify that. You might want to say, well, everybody else is doing it or whatever it might be. But I ask you, would Jesus do it? Would Jesus do it? There's a great uh, book written, remember, In His Steps, written by Charles Sheldon many years ago. It sold over 50 million copies, one of the best-selling books in all history. And it talks about that. And you remember the phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Whatever you're involved in, if you want to know whether it's right or wrong, would you say, would Jesus do this? And that'll answer your question, whether it's right or wrong. Jesus came to this earth to be with us so he could show us in human form how he wants us to act. And so that's one reason God was with us. Another reason is Jesus came to be with us so he could be our sympathetic high priest. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 says in verse 14, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus' time on earth qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. I mean, how could God understand completely what it's like to be a man, what it's like to be a human, unless he is human? And even though he's God, he knows everything, there's something about experience that shows you, and God sent his son Jesus so he could be an experienced person in humanity so he would know what we go through. And so he did that, and it says he was, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched. That means we have a high priest that can be touched. The word touched in the Greek language actually means sympathize. He can, be, he can sympathize with us. He understands what we go through because he's been there. The Bible says he was in all points tempted yet alike as we are, yet without sin. So the temptations came to him, but he did not sin. He did not have a thought of sin. He did not have a desire to sin because he was sinless, but he was tempted anyway. Some people say, well, how could Jesus be tempted if he wasn't even able to sin? Well, the Bible says God will now not allow us to be tempted above that we are able. And so God limits our temptations he did not do it above what we were able. But Jesus wasn't even able to sin. And so God, the devil could just throw all kinds of things at him. And he experienced all that. He went through all that. But he rejected sin every time. He was, he was tempted, but he did no sin. Now, we're told about that when, they took, when the devil took Jesus into the wilderness. Or he was, went into the wilderness, and there the devil tempted him. And it says in Luke chapter 4 in verse 2, that the devil tempted Jesus for 40 days. 40 days. Then afterwards, and during that 40 days, he did not eat. And after that, he was hungry, and then the major temptations that were told about come. But for 40 days, he tempted him in the wilderness. I don't know what all those temptations were, but if he tempted in wilderness for 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, toward the end of the 40 days, he said, it says he tempted him in, three, in three, three ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
he said to Jesus, he was hungry, you know, hadn't eaten for 40 days. He said, why don't you make these stones bread? And Jesus didn't do it because he was tempted. His, his physical desires was, I need something to eat. I don't know what you're like when you get hungry, but when I'm hungry, there's only one thing that satisfies it, and that's something to eat. And so Jesus got hungry. He knows what that's like. But uh, he would not turn the stones into bread even though he could. He would not do it. He was tempted by the devil with the lust of the flesh. He was this also tempted by the lust of the eyes. He took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, which the devil claimed to have power over at that time. He says, I'll give you all these things if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus wouldn't do it. All the kingdoms of the world look good, no doubt. He said, I'll give you all this, but Jesus said no. Then he was tempted with the lust, with the pride of life. He said, took him up to a pinnacle of the temple, and he said, cast yourself down. Doesn't the Bible say that angels will snatch you up and lest you dash your foot against a stone? I mean, wouldn't that be spectacular? You just jump off this pinnacle, everybody watching, and an angel comes down and grasps you up. I mean, surely you have a lot to brag about then. Why don't you do that? The, the, the pride of life. And he said, no. So all of our temptations fall somewhere in that. And uh, sometimes we, we fall to those temptations. But Jesus never did. By experience, he understands what we go through. He understands everything that you're going through. He understands when you're hungry. He's been there. He understands when you're tired. He understands when you lose a loved one, as some of you have done recently. He understands that because he has lost. He lost loved ones while he walked upon this earth. There's good evidence probably just from the lack of mentioning his name that Joseph, his, his earthly father, wasn't really his father, but considered his father, that Joseph probably died. And uh, then he lost friends, you remember, uh, Lazarus was a good friend. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus up from the grave, he wept because he, he was sorrowful about the experience that these people were going through. You see, he knows what it's like when you lose somebody close to you. He understands. When, you're, when your family turns against you, you've ever had that happen? I've had people tell me that some of the, you know, their best families at church because many of their families don't understand them and they turn against them. Well, Jesus knows what that's like. Remember, his brothers thought he was crazy, and uh, they didn't accept him till later. And so he understands that. He's been through that. He understands when a friend betrays you because Jesus had, was betrayed by Judas, and he called him right at the last minute. He said, friend, betrayest thou me with a kiss? He understands when a close friend denies that they ever knew you. They don't want to be around you. They don't want anything to do with you. The crowd doesn't accept you anymore, and so they're not going to accept you. Well, Jesus had the, one of his closest friends, Peter, deny him. and said, I never knew him, and he cursed. Jesus understands that when you go through that. Jesus knows when you suffer wrongfully for something you did not do. Jesus knows that. He went to the cross for your sins, not his. He suffered wrongfully for things that he did not do. Jesus understands when you experience pain. Some of you have had pain recently. And does Jesus understand? Oh, yes, he does. He understands. He understands all that because he's experienced more pain than we could ever think about. 
He understands when the world rejects you and even hates you. And he said, don't be surprised, they hated me as well. You see, Jesus knows. And he came to this earth, God came to this earth to be with us as a human being, as a man, so that he could be the sympathetic high priest. And when we come to him with troubles, he understands. And so he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your care on me because I care for you. God really does care. God really does understand. Hebrews 4, verse 16 says, Come boldly to the throne of grace that, he may, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One, one uh, translator, a uh, Greek scholar, translate that in the time of need to actually say in the nick of time. Grace to help in the nick of time. Just when you need it, he's there. Remember the song, Just When I Need Him Most? Just when I need him most. Jesus is there to comfort. He's there when we need him, just when you need him most. He came so we could be, he could be our sympathetic high priest to understand. That was necessary. He had to be one of us. He had to come with us in order to fully understand what it's like to be human and to go through all the problems. And so Jesus understands. And then also Jesus came to be so he could be our substitute. God came to be with us so he could be our substitute. You see, God himself is the one who said that sin has to be paid for. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, every man should be put to death for his own sin. Jeremiah 31, verse 30, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Under the Old Testament law, Animals became substitutes for man. Man deserved to pay for his sin, but God allowed an animal to take his place, and that animal was sacrificed on the, on the altar as a substitute for the man. Hebrews 7, verse 27 says everybody had to do that. Everybody needed a substitute. Even the priest, the high priest, needed a substitute because it says... The high, those high priests offered up sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the people. Everybody needed somebody to take their place. The problem was, you know, you would have an animal die for you one day. Then the next year, like at the Passover, there would be another animal and then another animal. And so all these animals were dying in your place because you deserved to die. You deserve to pay the price, but they were doing for you. But the problem was those sacrifices never really took away sin. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. So when John saw Jesus walking along the way in John 1, 29, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, he said, this Lamb of God, this substitute is going to do something that none of the other animals, all the millions of animals have been slain during Old Testament times. This animal, or this, this substitute, the Lamb of God, this one is going to take away the sin of the world. No animal has been able to do that. This is the true substitute, the Lamb of God. He's available. And Jesus, when he walked this earth, before he died on the cross, he was that substitute. They found out later, believers did, that he was 
that he actually became the sacrifice, but he was the substitute who came for that purpose. Hebrews 10, verse 5 says, uh, speaking of Jesus, says, sacrificing offering, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So why did God have to come to be with us as a human being? Because he had to take upon himself a body. Jesus said, sacrifice and offering, you don't desire a body you have prepared for me. So a body had to be prepared. And so when that babe was being formed in the womb, there was being formed the body of the Son of God so that he might be sacrificed for our sins. He must, might die for us. And so the Bible says there's only one substitute that's, that's sufficient, and that's Jesus. He's the only substitute that can actually do it. He's the only one that can take our place. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. One substitute, that's all. Isn't it futile that some people say, well, I think I'm going to go to heaven because I've done this and this and this and this. And they're saying to God, I don't care about your substitute. I have my own substitute. And for me to get to heaven... I'm going to offer all these things, all these good works, all this religious observance, all these things I'm going to offer to you, and surely I'm going to be good enough. And the Bible says no, nobody. There's no substitute sufficient to take away the sin of the world except Jesus. He's the only one. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus came... With, to be with us so he could be our substitute. But then we have to go on to the next thing, and that is Jesus came to be with us so that he could be our sacrifice. The substitute is one thing, but unless that substitute becomes a sacrifice, it's not going to satisfy God's desires. And so the Bible says he became our sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The substitute had to become the sacrifice, and Jesus did that for us. We deserve God's wrath, God's judgment. And so for Jesus to be our substitute, he has to be sacrificed. He has to experience that wrath. He has to experience that judgment for us. And that's what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The shedding of blood, that's the sacrifice. How can you have a sacrifice that takes the place, that's the substitute for the person, unless he has blood? Does God have blood? No, not until Jesus came to this earth. But blood was required. This was said in the Old Testament without the shedding of blood. There has to be blood. There has to be blood shed. And then it's, that, that uh, truth is emphasized in Hebrews. It says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. When I was working with young people while I was in seminary, many it's been 50 years ago, I guess, uh, we were trying to teach the young people about this thing about sacrifice and how gruesome it was. 
And I remember taking them out in the parking lot at the church there in Fellowship Baptist Church in Warsaw, Indiana, and had these young people gathered around. And we had a little lamb, a stuffed lamb. And I had gotten some packets of, of ketchup and sewed it inside the neck. And uh, to show those kids how gruesome this was, I took a knife and sliced that, and that ketchup came out. <laughs> and it showed them, you know, a picture of the blood. Well, you might say, well, that's a little bit going a little too far. But no, we need to understand that's a terrible thing, what happened. Jesus had to shed his blood. He shed his blood when he was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us about this sacrifice and gives us details about it. When the Lord says in verse 3 that he was despised and rejected of men. Verse 4, he, was, he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 8, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath made his soul an offering for sin. All of that talks about the sacrifice. Jesus had to come to this earth. God had to come to this earth and be with us so he could take upon himself human flesh and he would be the substitute who would be sacrificed for us. And that sacrifice meant he died for us. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. That sacrifice included the shedding of blood. How did he shed his blood? Well, there were seven wounds from which the blood came from the Lord's body. There was the whipped back. There was the crown of thorns on his head. There was plucked beard, which brought the, brought the blood from his face. There was the nail in this hand and the nail in that hand. And then there was the nail when the two feet were put together and one nail went through those feet. And then after he died, there was the seventh wound, and that is when they thrust the spear into his side and out came blood and water. Jesus shed his blood for us. He was sacrificed for us. It was a gruesome thing. But probably worse than all of that was when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That meant God the Father was turning against his Son because he was pouring down his wrath on his Son, which we deserve. We, have to, we deserve all of that. We deserve what Jesus went through. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to go to hell forever and ever. But on the cross, in that period of three hours, Jesus took all the sin of the world and paid a complete price for it. He was separated from God so that it was all taken care of. It was paid. Jesus did that when he was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus as your substitute, who was sacrificed for you, he becomes your his sympathetic high priest and your standard in how to live. Because Jesus did all that for me, I should live for him. And how should I live? Holy. I should reject sin. I should live like Jesus lived upon this earth. That's my standard. But then there's one last reason I want to give you this morning. And that is Jesus came to be with us so he could be our sure hope. Now, what do I mean by that? Our sure hope. Let me give you a verse or a couple verses. 1 John chapter 3 says this. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Notice every man that hath this hope. Bible hope is not, oh, I hope this is going to happen. You know, there's doubt whether it will. Bible hope is something that's steadfast and sure. Bible hope can be described as, can be defined like this. It's anticipation of something we know shall be because he promised it. We anticipate, anticipate something that we know is going to happen because he promised it. What's he promised? He's promised that we will be like him. So God sent his son to this earth. God became flesh. God became Emmanuel. God with us so we could see so we could understand what we're going to be like throughout all eternity. And that is, what are we going to be like? Throughout all of eternity, we're going to be like Jesus. We won't be God, but we'll be that perfect man, that perfect human being. There will be no sin, no sin whatsoever. You read some of these comments when somebody dies that don't know the Lord, and somebody comments about it, you know, about all the out and fun in heaven. I heard one person say, well, they're probably drinking a beer up there. Oh, my goodness, how foolish. How foolish. What are we going to be like when we get to heaven? What are we going to be like? And by the way, there's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. The way to heaven is not to die. I've gone to a lot of funerals that you leave with that impression. Well, all you got to do is die, and you go to heaven. No, the way you go to heaven is through trusting Jesus as your personal Savior. But what are we going to be like when heaven... What are we going to be like when we get that, that, uh, that brand new body the Lord's promised us? We're going to be like Jesus. I mean, we're going to have a body like his, a physical body of flesh and bones. We're going to be able to do like Jesus did, and that is walk through that wall. We're going to be able to be at present somewhere and just in a, in a second of time. I mean, it's amazing what we'll be able to do in the body, but their main characteristic of this is this. When we get to heaven, there will be absolutely no sin whatsoever. None whatsoever. You might say, when I get to heaven, I hope this is there. I've had people say, when I get to heaven, I hope there's a stream so I can fish. Because I really like that. Or somebody says, I get to heaven, I hope that I'll have a, a, a beautiful little mansion in the corner of glory land. Well, let me tell you something. When you get to heaven, you'll be totally happy without any disappointment in whatever God gives you because there will be no sin in heaven. There'll be no disappointment. There'll be no, you'll, somebody said, I heard not long ago, oh, I'm disappointed that when I get to heaven, I'll not be married to my husband. Now, some women wouldn't say that. but, but uh, And, you know, they, they wanted to spend eternity as man and wife with their husband. And they're sort of disappointed when they found that out it's not going to be that way. But you won't be disappointed. You'll be happy. You'll be thrilled with what God has for you. You'll be brother and sister in Christ, and everyone will be, you will be happy in heaven. And the way you know what you're going to be like when you get to heaven is to look at Jesus. He came to this earth. He became a man. He died on the cross of Calvary. Then he rose from the grave with that glorious body victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he has a glorified body, and that's what we're going to be like. But we would, never know, we would have never known that if God hadn't left heaven and made God with us on this earth. We would never have known that unless God had become flesh 
and become a man so that he could show us what we're going to be like when we get to heaven. You see, it's wonderful to know the Lord. It's wonderful to know that someday we're going to be like Jesus. Let me take this one step further and clarify to you this. Jesus said he came to be with us. But you know, the Bible says if you trust Jesus as your Savior, that experience can be now on this earth. Because Jesus said to disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In Hebrews chapter chapter 13, verse 5, he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So right now, we as believers have God with us. We have God with us through the Spirit of God. He is with us. And that should, that should say something about how we live because there is no such thing as a God-forsaken place. You can't get away from the presence of the Lord. Everywhere you go, He is. And if you're a truly believer, you should be concerned about how you live because He's there with you. He is God with us. And He always will be. And then the Bible says, when we go to heaven... When we get to be with the Lord, we're going to be with him. Remember Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's with us now with the Spirit of God, but someday we'll be with him in bodily presence. There's a body in heaven, and he's God. That's Jesus, the Son of God. He still has a human body. And we will be with him in our human bodies, our glorified bodies will be with the Lord. And he says, so shall you ever be with the Lord. Then the Bible tells us that if we're alive at the time that Jesus comes back from heaven, it says he's going to come back, the trumps shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed. And it it says that we're going to be caught up together with him. And then it concludes that saying, saying, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, with the Lord, God with us. God came to be with us so that we could be with him. And if you know Jesus today as your Savior, you're with him right now, and you will be with him forever. Does that mean always in heaven? No, because when the Lord takes us up at the rapture, or if you die before you go to heaven, And then at the rapture, he brings you back with him, and we who are alive go up to be with him. We're going to be in heaven for seven years while seven years of tribulation period are going on this earth. And then we're going to come back with him. We won't be in heaven anymore. We'll be on the earth. And we'll be on the earth for 1,000 years, this earth, ruling and reigning with Jesus. And then the Lord's going to destroy this present earth, and he's going to make a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, and we're going to be with him there as well a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. And that new earth is going to have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, out of heaven where it's at now, coming down to sit on that brand new earth, and we're going to be there. It doesn't matter where it is. What matters is, is God there? And, And the answer is, yes, he is. And we will be with him. God came to be with us so that we could be with him. I hope that you've trusted him as your Savior today. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for Emmanuel. Thank you that you saw fit, Lord, to be with us so that someday we could be with you. 
I thank you, Lord, that you are our standard. You are our sympathetic high priest. You are our substitute. You are our sacrifice. And you are our sure hope. Help us to be faithful to Jesus, we who know him as our Savior. And if anybody here is not saved, may today be the day they put their trust in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.